Sometimes hear the statement of, uh, about individuals that they were destined for greatness. And I've read enough biographies to recognize the fact that there are a lot of people that if you were to look at their early life, you would say they weren't destined for greatness. Think about uh, our state uh, here. It's uh, Illinois. It is known as the land of Lincoln, which I kind of laugh at because if you look at you know, the signs that you enter into states, if you go into Indiana, it says uh, boyhood home of Lincoln. If you go to Kentucky, they say birthplace of Abraham Lincoln and, and we're the land of Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln didn't even show up here until he was 21 years of age. So uh, he had uh, come here, but he stayed here and uh, was uh, the candidate from here for president. But you look at his life and you kind of go, there, there was nothing indicating the fact that he would ever be president of the United States. I mean, you kind of look at his jobs. I mean, he had a job as a rail splitter as a boatman, and being a boatman, he actually is one of the only, I think the only president of the United States to have a patent that uh, he came up with. But still, he was, he was a boatman, manual laborer, was a soldier, store clerk, eventually a store owner, an election clerk, uh, a postmaster, a surveyor, you go, he, he never settles on one job. You're like, no, it doesn't seem like he ever did. But he finally gets into what we would know as a, he was a lawyer and a state legislature, a congressman, and eventually the president of the United States. But you look at his early life and you're going, there doesn't seem to be anything that would indicate the fact that he would be president. This got done, uh, at least uh, attempting to start reading a biography of James Garfield, who is uh, from northwestern or northeastern Ohio. And you look at his life and you're just kind of going, there's no indicator of that. He would have been president of the United States. We did have a president named Garfield, for those that don't know that. But uh, we had a, a president named uh, that. He was eventually assassinated and he wasn't a very long-term president. But when you early on look at his life, he's from a family that the father dies uh, young. He's got many siblings. He kind of works jobs off and on. He finally decides to be a teacher and gets involved in different things and then eventually becomes a, an officer in the Civil War. And uh, that kind of propels him eventually to him being a president of the United States. But you look at his early life, there's no indicator of greatness. And when we look at the story in Genesis chapter 37, and will be our story all the way through to chapter 50, there is no indicator initially as far as just looking at the life of an individual uh, that they're going to be one who rules uh, the world in some ways. Joseph, who becomes second in command in Egypt, only under Pharaoh, but his commands are binding for everyone. You would never know that this individual Joseph was going to be second in command in Pharaoh, under Pharaoh. No indicator, but as we read the story, you begin to understand that there is a providential working of God behind the scenes to make this happen not accidental you know it's not that he suddenly becomes this by a series of accidents no it's very obvious as you read through genesis 37 to 50 that god's hand is here we we have entered a new chapter do do we remember this that uh, when you read through the book of genesis and you read through the, the really the whole of the bible you have to understand that the authors originally didn't have chapters and verses now, Paul didn't sit down to pen the Gospel of Romans and, and start off and go Romans 1, 1. Romans 1, 2. 
That was something that was given to us years later uh, by men trying to organize the Bible in the sense of people being able to figure out where passages were at. It was almost a thousand years after Christ that we ended up getting the chapter and verses uh, set up that we're uh, used to. But Moses gives us very clear chapter sections. And you go, how do we know those? Well, look at verse number 2, and we started off with this statement, these are the generations of. And you start off in, uh, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, it says these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, and then you go through the rest of the book, and there are certain times where it says these are the generations of, and these are the generations of so-and-so, and these are the generations of so-and-so. These are, these are the way that Moses says, okay, we've got a new section. And in this case, it says, these are the generations of Jacob. And you'd go, oh, well, this is going to focus on Jacob. And you're going, wait, no, wait, we've just spent the whole before of this focusing on Jacob. And that was in the middle of a, a chapter that was entitled, these are the generations of Isaac. When you see the statement, these are the generations of Jacob, what we're saying is this, these are the offspring of Jacob, what they're doing. And what we're going to see in these chapters ahead is that there's going to be a development of what we know as the sons of Israel, understand the sons of Jacob, these 12 individuals that are eventually going to be the head of the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, this development that takes place in their life. It's going to take place in a, a really a, about a 20, 22 year time span that we have here where you have individuals that are one way at the beginning and by the time you get to the end, they're completely different individuals. God does something in their life. God does something to change them. As we go through, we're going to see the fact that there is two characters that are going to be developed, and it really doesn't make any sense. The one, initially, uh, a guy by the name of Judah. Judah plays a major role. In fact, when we get to Genesis chapter 39, we're going to read, a, or Genesis chapter 38, we're going to have a whole chapter about him. You go, why? Well, uh, you're eventually going to get to the end of the book and find out that Judah's line is the one through whom the king is going to come, the Messiah, who is going to rule over the nation of Israel and rule over the world. But there's development in his character. And then you also see Joseph. And so you have the 12 boys that are here, but there's a focusing in on Judah and Joseph and what goes on in their life and what God does to move them from one place to another. What we're going to see in all of this is we've already kind of stated in this story from Genesis chapter 37 to Genesis chapter 50 is that we're going to see God at work. Okay, there's a lot that's going to go on that you're just kind of going, well, how did that happen? You know, there just happened to be people that were Ishmaelites that were walking by where Joseph was being held and they managed to take him down to Egypt and he goes to a place where there's a man by the name of Potiphar that takes him on as his slave. And you kind of go, oh, this is just, you know, accidental. But you look through it and God's hand is behind all of this. God's at work. Just as he is in even events that you look at in the world today, God is not absent from them. He is getting things to where he needs them to be at, and he works behind the scenes. Now, sometimes he's obvious, as we're going to have in this passage, he sometimes communicates through dreams. 
Okay, that's an obvious interference of God here uh, in the lives of individuals. But what you're going to see is a lot of God just working behind the scenes, getting a person to be where they need to be at, and not through the normal pattern that you would think that God's going to do this. And thus, when you get to the end of the story, Joseph's going to be able to communicate to his brothers, they did him evil, but God did this for good. He meant it for good. The things that were ones that looked at like this was a complete destruction of an individual, God was able to take that and change that. And it was because of the fact that God was working behind the scenes. And so we're going to be able to focus in on the life of Joseph. He's much like a man by the name of Daniel. You know, some people compare the two of them, individuals who have a following of God, they're sincerely looking to him for help, and they end up being second in command to, to the rulers of the world of their day, and, and there are times where they do right, and it gets them imprisoned. And God still is able to use them, and we're going to be able to see this, but ultimately when we get done, we ought to be going, God's a really incredible God. To be able to take care, as he said, through the 12 sons of Jacob, he said, your sons, I'm going to get them to where they need to be at. I'm going to give them the promise uh, that I've given to Abraham and to Isaac and I've given to you. That same promise is going to be fulfilled in their life. God is able to work this out. And by the time you get done, you just go, what an incredible God. And so for us, as we start off, and we're just we're going to look at what we have here this morning in verses 2 through 11, uh, we, we understand this, that God's got a plan for Joseph's life, as God has a plan for each one of our lives. God's doing something. You go, I don't see it right offhand. He is. He's still doing something. But God is doing something, and, and for us, the lesson to be learned is this, this, even though God has a plan for your life, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, or maybe you're unsaved, God's still got a plan for your life. But uh, understand this, for those that are the followers of God, even though God has a plan for your life, some people will envy and hate you. It's going to happen. You go, really, is it going to happen? You may be in God's plan and there's going to be people who hate you. And it's not because of anything that you have done. You see, what happens in the story, we're familiar with it. The first thing that happens is just this, that envy and hatred are sometimes brought on by people's actions. The story that you have here starting off is the story in verse number two of Joseph's evil report about his brothers. We know that he's 17 years of age. Uh, we're told that which is an indicator then later on we can figure out when these events are taking place. But he's 17 years of age. He's a young man at this time. And he's sent out to work with his brothers. You say, which of the brothers is he given to, to work with? It says here that he's with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. And you go, well, who were those individuals? And it would be just simply the brothers by the name of Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. So those four boys, that's who he would have been working with. And whatever the case was, is when he went out to work with his brothers, he comes back and gives a report to dad that they did something. We're not told what. 
You say, what kind of evil could they have been doing? Just think about how the end of chapter 37 ends. These are the type of individuals who are willing to beat up their brother, throw him in a pit, and sell him off. And they do it without even really batting an eye, contemplating maybe that this is not a good thing. They go ahead and do this. So whatever they were doing, it may have been the fact that they weren't tending the sheep like they should have, they, they were being lackadaisical about this, careless, uh, something like that, or it could have been just the fact that they were evil, they were doing something wrong, and Joseph comes back and tells dad. Now the question comes out, uh, this, was he a tattletale? You know, I've, I've, I've seen people use this sometimes and go, don't be a tattletale. Look at what happened to Joseph. I mean, I read it in a commentary this week. You know, there's a, you, know you shouldn't be tattling. You're like, wait, wait a second. The, the scripture doesn't say anything about the fact that what he did was wrong here. In fact, it may very well be that his dad had said, you're the one responsible and I want you to give me a report when you come back. I mean, he very well was doing what his father had instructed him to do, and he gives a report, and he's honest about it uh, and what has gone on. But as a result of this, it does not go well as far as the response. I mean, he brings this uh, report back. That obviously, the brothers aren't going to be happy that they have been, been reported that they aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing to dad, who is their boss. And so you have this element that might have started uh, the whole fact of these brothers hating Joseph and not liking him. But you have the actions of Jacob that don't help the situation. It's not Joseph's fault here what happens to him. What we have in verse number 3, it says this, Now Israel loved Joseph then more than all of his children. Now think about this. Had Jacob not in his own life experienced favoritism in a family that tore it apart? I mean, he, he lived in a family. His dad was Isaac. He had a brother by the name of Esau. His mother was Rebekah. And as you read this, the account in Genesis chapter 27, it says that Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah favored Jacob. And as a result of this, Isaac was trying to do things that favored Esau, while Rebekah tried to do things that favored Jacob. And what did you have? You had a family that divided. Jacob spent 20 years uh, away from the land of Israel as the result of this playing out, the favoritism being shown to one son to another. And it serves as a warning as parents, grandparents, be careful on being a grandparent who has favorites or parents who have favorites now, granted you may get along with some of the sons and, and the daughters that you have and granddaughters and great granddaughters and sons that you may have but the fact is is you look in the scripture in the book of genesis and showing a favoritism of one over the other one really has a an impact if it's to the detriment of all the other ones I mean, jo Jacob should have known that his love being displayed to Joseph over all of the other sons would have been 
disastrous because he himself had experienced this but he goes ahead and shows favoritism and you say well how does he show favoritism you have this in verse number uh, three at the end he made him a coat of many colors you say what does that mean that he gave him a coat of many colors read a commentary and you'll find multiple different interpretations of what this means the language in the hebrew indicates nothing about colors the reason that we got the idea of colors is that when it was translated from hebrew into greek uh, the people in translating there put in the word colors the only other time that this phrase is actually used in the scripture it's used uh, in first samuel excuse me second samuel chapter 13 to describe the robe being worn uh, by a princess what most people think that this is is not that this is a coat of many colors which would have been very unusual in those cultures to have something like this but more than likely this is a coat that is one that had longer sleeves on it and was longer you go why because of the fact that individuals that had longer sleeves and a longer coat were probably ones doing less manual labor than other individuals you go why because the longer sleeves would get caught and stuff you'd have to bind it up in order to do the work and so the person who was the one in charge or the one who was the leader or the one that was responsible and wasn't doing all of the work like everybody else might have worn a longer garment and what you have is that jacob makes a coat that symbolizes and signifies to the brothers this is the one that dad really likes in fact more than likely since many of the brothers have already offended their dad Simeon and levi had murdered off a village reuben had gone into his father's uh or his concubine and had been with her i mean the, the brothers have already kind of realized maybe we aren't getting the inheritance we thought we're getting and maybe we're not going to be in the leadership positions we're supposed to be in and then dad comes along and takes the second youngest of the sons first son of rachel his loved wife and he picks this one and puts this garment on him symbolizing the fact that he's going to be the leader the one in charge that he's appreciated the most he's probably going to get the double inheritance he's probably going to be the one that leads out the family dad does this you go what is the response of the brothers going to be well it's what we would expect verse 4 when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brother or brethren they hated him and could not speak peaceably they couldn't come up with any words of nicety at all to their brother and you go well why does the individuals here hate him well it's partially because jacob was probably doing what he was supposed to do and reporting back to his father not so much being a tattletale but that's how the brothers would have viewed it he's just doing what he was supposed to be doing but then his dad makes it even worse by showing favoritism over all the other 11 and so they see this and they become individuals who hate joseph because of actions that others had done and even he had done himself and so as you see in life sometimes there are going to be people that hate you and envy you just on the basis of either actions you do or other people do to you and there's going to be a whole group of people that aren't going to like you for it it's going to happen 
But you also see this, that envy and hatred are sometimes brought on by the revelation of God's plan. Revealing what God is going to do and what He's going to say and what He's going to accomplish. You see that in verse 5 to verse 11 where God reveals something. He does it in a way that we don't normally now do this. Verse 5, Joseph dreamed a dream. Back in this time, remember, they didn't have a Bible. Okay, the story we're reading was the first of the Scriptures that we have. And it was written by a descendant of the individuals in this story. A man by the name of Moses. They didn't have Scripture to turn to. So you say, how did God communicate to individuals back then? It was oftentimes that He would appear to them. You have the whole story in Genesis chapter 18 where God actually appeared in, in physical form and sat and talked with Abraham over a meal. You have other occasions where there's what we would call visions. And you go, what are visions? Visions are at times where an individual is wide awake, but they see something that other people don't see. That's what a vision is. They see something that people don't see. Otherwise, they see it. God communicated through, through that way. And it was sometimes what God would do is that an individual would be asleep and he would give them something that was a communication from him. I mean, these are the ways that God communicated. He doesn't do this anymore. You go, why? Because we have the complete revelation of what God needs us to know in the Scripture. So if you say somebody had a dream and they saw something and you know they had this go on and whatever, you're going, I've got enough, thanks. God's revealed everything I need. But back then, He communicated multiple times to individuals, even through dreams, while they're asleep, where things would happen. I mean, I just think to this point in the book of Genesis that uh, when you have the story of Abraham, that God in a dream, I believe it was in Genesis 17, tells him that his children are going to dwell in the land of Egypt. That they're going to go there and live for some 400 years. Jacob, when he's finally leaving Laban in a dream, God comes to him and promises protection and, and prosperity when he's living with Laban in Syria. When Jacob comes back and, and Laban's chasing after him, Laban actually has God come to him in a dream and communicate to him, you don't do anything to him, good or bad. And then you have a case like this where you have that God communicates to Joseph something important. How they identified what dreams were important and what weren't, I don't know, but there seemed to be some indicator that these individuals realized something unusual had happened. In this case, Jake or Joseph recognized that this was a unique thing that had gone on. And for him, he <clears throat> reports this dream. And he told it to his brothers, and they hated him yet the more. And you kind of go, should he kept this quiet? I mean, God had communicated this to him. Should he have kept it quiet? I mean, the, the question is, is how he did it. We don't know how he did this. How he presented it to his brothers. But with them hating him, it wouldn't have mattered if he did it in the right way or the wrong way. They would have just gotten upset with him even more over the whole situation. But whatever the case is, he gives this dream, and these dreams that he has. And the first one that he has, he just tells his brothers about it. 
He goes, what, what happens in this dream? It's an you know, incredible thing that would have happened here, not normally happening in real life, that the brothers are binding sheaves in the field. It's harvest time. It would have been kind of unusual because the brothers weren't farmers. You go, what were they? They were shepherds. Okay, so this is kind of opposite of what they were doing. They were, you would say, well, they're farmers. No, they're, they're people who take care of uh, flocks, not crops. But in this, this dream, he goes, we were out, we're binding sheaves together, and I had my sheaf that was bundled up, and uh, mine was really straight and tall, and you put yours out there that you bound them together, and they were all there. And then what happened was this, is that all of those sheaves bowed themselves to the ground towards my sheaf. And you say, well, the wind knocked them over. Well, the wind only blows from one direction. So you have them all bowing towards this. This is something that would have been quite unusual. And so when he says this, they automatically know what this dream is communicating. They don't need an interpreter. They know what it means. His brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? Are you going to be able to rule over us? And the, the answer in theirs is, it's a, you know, the answer is obvious, so they don't even answer it. The answer is, no, you're not going to. But it is in God's divine providence, interesting, the symbol that he uses. You go, wouldn't he use flocks? No. Remember when the brothers finally meet Joseph some 20 years later, or 22 years later, what are they there for? They're there for grain, wheat. And just in thinking through this, you go, oh, so there's kind of a hinting of the fact that these brothers, in regards to wheat, are going to come and bow down to their brother and that he's going to have rule over them. I mean, the, sim the symbols here are important. It's communicating the fact that these brothers will one day worship him, but it's going to be over the issue of grain, wheat, and that they are going to worship him. And you see at the, the end of this, verse 8, they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. They, they, it's just building here the tension. Even though what Joseph has done and all of these things, it's still right. You get to verse 9, he dreamed yet another dream, told it to his brethren, and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance or bowed to me. He told it to his father and his brother, and his, brother, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? Now you say, Why in the world is he using now the symbols of uh, the sun, moon, and stars? You have to re remember where Joseph is going to end up. You go, where does he end up? The land of Egypt. And the land of Egypt was very concerned about the gods and the rulers, and they all had symbols attached to them. The most important of their gods being what? Ra. And if you look at the name Pharaoh, it has Ra right in it. P-H-A-R-A-O-H. Ra. And what you have is individuals uh, had come up with this idea that, well, the Pharaoh was the son, of the, the son of the sun god, Ra. Thus, he's the name of Pharaoh, and he's one who is a ruler. 
And so you, you think about this, here you've got individuals who are going to be, well, in Egypt that are eventually going to come and worship at Joseph's feet because they're going to be looking for grain and wheat. But eventually what's going to happen is that Joseph's brothers, uh, these individuals that are in his realm of uh, life, are going to come and worship him along with his father who is eventually going to come and reread the story that his father falls at his feet. That this is going to happen. But Jacob states, the, what they, they know what the interpretation is. You mean us as your family are going to come sometime and worship you? And he, he rebukes him. But he then does this, that he, as you see in verse number 11 his brethren envied him but his father observed the saying it's kind of when jesus rebukes his some can compare this when jesus was a young man and he was in the temple and he says certain things and then it says this that his her mother and mother rebuked him saying we looked all over the place for you and then jesus said did you not know i was supposed to be about my father's business and it says that she kept these things in her heart Jacob is not looking at his son in a bad sense when he rebukes him. He's probably saying, you shouldn't just say this out loud. And he knows how the brothers now feel towards uh, Joseph. And there's a rebuke going on. It really, do you think this is a 17-year-old that we're going to, you're going to have us bow to you? But he holds it in his heart and he, he thinks about this. Could this actually be the case? Because this is a God-given thing. This is God's revelation. Now, the brothers, they don't care that it's God's revelation. They don't care because they, as it says in verse number 11, his brother env brothers envied him. It goes from hatred now to envy. I mean, they can't eye him at all without any sort of uh, like for him. And they envy him because he has everything they want. And he's doing those things. The brothers hated Joseph and, and uh, they hated him in every single way they could. But what you have here is God's revelation being given. Joseph is the spokesman of what God has said. And you have the brothers here who are mad and angered and upset, even though it's a revelation from God. And you say, okay, so we get to this uh, passage and you go, well, what are we supposed to do with this? You know, none of us are going to be president of the United States that we know of. None of us are going to be rulers of Egypt. None of us are going to have dreams. None of these things are going to happen. But we are in a situation very similar to Joseph. There's people that don't like you. And it's not going to be at your fault really at all that they don't like you. They just hate you. You go, Why? Well, I want you to turn a passage in John chapter 15, okay? This, this is the, the New Testament. What do we do with a, a passage like this? You know, do we have these type of things occur? And the answer is, yeah, you, you do have these type of things occur. John chapter 13 through 17 is the Lord's last statements to his disciples before he is crucified. He's telling them in 14 that he's going away. They're upset by this. But uh, then he tells them in John chapter 15 at the beginning, it reminds them, I am the true vine, ye are the branches, abide in me. 
You know, you, you remain in my teachings and what I've said and have confidence in me. But then he makes a statement. In John chapter 15, in verse number 18, he starts this way. He says this. He's going away. He's going to be gone. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, I just want us to stop here for a second before we go any further. When you think about individuals who are followers of Jesus Christ, they ought to be the best people in society. You go, why? Because they're kind, they're righteous, they're obeying the rules, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're ones who are, if they're following Christ, will reflect a kindness and goodness to others. And will do these things, but you have certain places where because you just simply say, I'm a Christian, the person may not know you, and they automatically hate you. They despise you. But you're looking and you're going, well, why, why is this the case that this is uh, the fact? Well, understand this, that you have the nicest person that ever entered the world. You go, who is that? Jesus Christ? Do you imagine an individual who's able to go around and cure everybody's sickness? One who can provide food out of nothing? One who has care and concern for individuals on an individual level and is wearing himself out from morning to night and dealing with people and answering their questions and taking care of these things? that there's still people that hate an individual like this. I mean, he even raises people from the dead. He takes care of the worst problem that people have. He's raising individuals from the dead, and there's still people that hate him. I mean, he said this, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. The disciples would have seen some of the hatred and the vitriol that has been poured out against Jesus. And they're going to see it in the next few hours when Jesus is put up on the cross and you see the crowds that are just yelling, crucify him, crucify him, away with him. His blood be upon us. I mean, Jesus makes this statement, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Do you realize that this conflict has been going on from the beginning of humanity? That individuals that are followers of God are hated by individuals that are not followers of God. You know, I don't know about that. We, we, we went through a story right at the beginning of the book of Genesis that was two brothers. One by the name of Cain and one by the name of Abel, and you have these two brothers who present themselves before God. One offers a sacrifice that he thinks should be offered. The other one offers one that God wants offered. And God is pleased with that sacrifice that Abel gave, not with the one that Cain gave. And what do you have? You suddenly read that story, and Cain is angry. He's hating his brother. He's envious, and it eventually leads to what? Murder. 
And that, that battle has gone on over throughout history where individuals who are followers of God, just it raises the animosity of individuals that individuals would be followers of God and that they would be servants of His and be followers of Jesus Christ. It makes them upset. And you go, why? Because this is just part of their sinful character. The devil hates God and everything that is His. And you think about this, the devil is the one who's energizing the children of disobedience, the individuals in this world, and you think he hates God? He hates God's followers just as much. And he uses individuals in this world who are following and have rejected God to go their own way, that they're going to hate those that are doing what's right, that are followers of God, that claim to be followers of his. And the Lord says in, in, there in John chapter 15, verse 20, Remember the word that I said unto you, the, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they had kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Verse 21, But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. Why do people hate those that are followers of God? because they don't love god and you think about it they really can't get after god now, they can't go up to the throne room of god and do anything to him but they can get at his followers who are still here and express their animosity to them in verse 22 the lord says this if i had not come and spoken unto them they had not sinned but now they have no cloak for their sin what upset some of the people that were here that made them hate jesus it's because he came and said you're a sinner it's kind of like jacob or joseph's report the brothers aren't doing very well in fact they're sinning they're evil that didn't make the brothers happy so it is when you think about this world if you're a light that you're simply saying this is what god has said this is what god has declared people are going to recognize wait a second we don't even come close to that standard what you're saying is that we're wrong we're not right and you say that happens quite often when individuals have sin put out in front of them and said that they're sinners and you understand this as believers we're coming to individuals and just simply saying we're all sinners and you know what some people will say we don't like that who are you to tell us that we're a sinner and you simply say, it's not me that's saying this, it's God that's saying this, but they don't care because you're simply just declaring what God has said and you're the one nearest by. They'll go after you. Verse 23, Jesus said this, He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man could do, they had not sinned. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father but this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Did they really have a reason to hate me? I mean, did these people really have a reason to hate Jesus? All the good that he had done to them, all the things that he had shown and all the things that he shared with them, did they really have a reason to hate him? The answer was no. It's just that they're sinners. They don't like God. They don't like his plans. They don't like who he is. And what you oftentimes find is that individuals will strike out at the ones they can at least get to. And that's those that declare they're a follower of God.
I say this to you because some of you are in here and you have family members that are hateful and angry towards you. And what you've attempted to do since you've become a follower of Jesus Christ to show them kindness, goodness, pray for them, care for them, and they still hate you. You go, what's going on? I don't understand. Understand, this has been going on for a long time. If individuals aren't following God, they'll go after family members, they'll go after friends, they'll go after others who claim to be followers of God. They'll make life miserable for them. But you know what? We don't respond the same way that the world does when bad things happen to us. Say, how do you know that? You know, in closing here, we, we, remember Paul Harvey? He always had this thing called the rest of the story. You know, you read your story and you go, and now the rest of the story. I mean, we've got the first part here in Genesis chapter 37, 1 through 11, where the brothers hate him, they just despise him and whatever else. And you get to Genesis chapter 49 and 50, and you have the brothers are with Joseph, and dad dies. Dad's gone now, and Joseph's the one who's absolutely in charge of the family and everything that goes on. And the brothers come to him and basically plead with him, you know, we did you wrong and we know this. And Joseph's response is to, to simply say this, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And I will not change my promise that I made to you to take care of you. And I will not do anything like that. I'm not going to reflect evil for evil. I'm going to reflect good to what evil was shown to me. And for you that are in a situation like this, where you have maybe even close family members that hate you because you're a follower of Jesus Christ, don't go to the place where you're going, well, they've shown evil to me, I'll show evil to them. No, you reflect what Christ has done and reflecting goodness to you when you didn't deserve it. Just had this conversation this morning with Dave uh, Moore this morning. He asked me the question, why did Jesus pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do when he was on the cross? I mean, these are people that are laughing and mocking him while he's in open shame and nakedness on the cross and he can do nothing about it and he is praying, Father, forgive them. Do good to them that they don't deserve. And you go, if my Savior was on the cross and he could reflect that kind of attitude to those that are mocking him, <clears throat> making a joke of him and putting him to open shame and he's praying that God would give them salvation. I mean, that's what he's praying for. That these individuals, when they finally figure out, they know now what they've done. What you read in the book of Acts, suddenly people are going to realize, wait a second, we crucified our Christ, the Messiah. Some of those individuals are coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. So it is ought to be for us when bad things are done to us by people that we ought to reflect the goodness of Christ and a care and concern for their soul recognizing the fact that it may be those very things that are the things that change those individuals.
that they see your testimony time and time again and they see that what you are is not a fake thing or just a put on thing or a temporary thing that this person really is living something out they're reflecting christ they're reflecting who god is and that they are individuals is these people who persecute you will eventually see those things and what first peter tells us in chapter three is that one day they will glorify your father in the day of judgment you say what does that mean some of them are going to come to christ those that are persecuting you and hate you for this and so as we think about this this story be reminded of the fact that yes there are going to be people that hate you despise you envy you because you're individuals who know god's plan and have put faith in what he has declared as saving and they'll be angry with that but that doesn't mean we go and resort to the same things they're doing we just continue to reflect the care and the love of God and a care for their souls and pray that God would be merciful to them and grant them the opportunity to be saved, that you would see that. So learn from the life of Joseph, the whole of it, 37 through, 11, or 37 through chapter 50, and reflect a godlike attitude towards those that hate and envy and would seek to destroy lord we thank you we're reminded of a story like this and and uh, there may be some people that are pressed by family in a manner like this where not even good words can be said by relatives to them and part of it's because of the fact that they are believers and followers of jesus christ and that has upset members of a family, friends that are now bitter enemies. Lord, help individuals in this room that know Jesus Christ, that know you, to recognize there are going to be people that display hate, envy, and hurt. But it's for us not to exact revenge on individuals. No, it is for us to just simply point people to a God who is good who is kind, who is gracious, who is merciful. And that we continue to do that with the hope that those people will eventually see the God and the Savior that we know. So Lord, help us to have the strength not to respond with evil for evil, but that we respond with good for the evil that's displayed to us. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the testimony of Christ. It reminds us that he suffered just like we are in this world. And that we can go to him in prayer at times. Call on him for strength. Because he would have suffered some of the very same hatred. And so may we find our comfort in you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your son. It gives us confidence and hope in the most difficult of circumstances. And this we pray in the name of your Son. Amen.